Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. Clash! I wish I was a subscriber. I pod you till the daylight comes. Make sure you're entertained and informed. <laughs> well, um, that was a surprise. <laughs> Little bit of finesse, I thought. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Good morning. So, yes, it is a morning record. Uh, we are bright, breezy and early. Uh, yes, so uh, we are recording at the slightly unusual time of Sunday morning because, well, Kevin's health and lack of internet connection uh, scuppered our plans to record at our usual time. Yes, I've had a lurgy, definitely not COVID. Well, it's not been picked up on the COVID test, so, you know, could have well been COVID and I could have been infecting loads of people, but it's like a cold that I had with an incredibly sore throat, which did make talking slightly more difficult. <laughs> Not great for a pod. Um, And then our internet decided to go kaput completely. So it has made recording a slightly more tricky uh, process than it would be normally. (laughs) Indeed. Anyway, you guys don't care because it's, you know, that's the nature of podcasts. Um, So, uh, yeah. Anyway, how are you now, Kevin? Recovered from your, uh, your ailments? All good. All interneted as well. How about yourself? Yeah, I am very well, thank you. The arms are uh, much better now, pretty much healed, so uh, I can go back to my previous uh, antics of pretending to be (laughs) Spider-Man. Just for clarification for the listeners, Tim has not um, joined Fathers for Justice and uh, started scaling large buildings in uh, (laughs) London in a Spider-Man costume. (laughs) I have not. <laughs> Fathers for Justice, nice callback. Yeah, I thought. I thought very early two thousands. <laughs> anyway, Kev, it's another clash, and uh, these are your picks. What are we doing? So, yeah, we're bringing to a close our live season. We'll tell you what our um, where we're going next at the at the end of the se- of the second pod. But this week we're going to do. Um, a bit of live R&B soul. So, yeah, we're, it's it's a James Brown, Otis Otis Redding, absolute barnstormer of a clash. I think barnstormer is a, is a very good way to describe it, yeah. Uh, so uh, what are the albums we are doing? So the albums, uh, so today you are going to lead us through James Brown Live at the Apollo. And uh, in two weeks' time, I'm going to take us through Live in Europe by Otis Redding. Brilliant. I have to say, so so when, because obviously at the end of the last clash, I, I sort of guessed that it was Otis Redding. I thought you were going to do Live in Monterey. Um, well, I, I went with the Live in Europe because it was his first live live release, yeah. much as, uh, which is the reason for the clash is this is the first uh, live James Brown release because James Brown uh, recorded several live albums at the Apollo. Which are uh, which are legendary for all of them, but I decided the the first cut we would go the deepest with. <laughs> yeah, indeed, nice. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into it. Before we do, however, uh, it just can't get you out of my head. Time, Kev, any shite? Oh yeah. Oh God, go on then. 
So, yes, I definitely have some shite. So, Sam has been ordering uh, various foodstuffs off the internet. And one of the things that came was like a cheesy nacho dip thing. Mm-hmm. And it was made by a company called Core and Rind. <laughs> and as soon as I saw, <laughs> as soon as I saw the name, my brain instantly went, there ain't nothing wrong with a bit of Core and Rind. <laughs> so, yes, I've had Bump and Grind by Convicted Pedophile. Multiple convicted, multiple. Mu- multiple convicted pedophile R. Kelly. So is he a pedophile or is he just, a, he's a general general sex offender, I believe. Uh, uh, yes, but yeah, I, I think you're right. But I do I, I do think that, that at least one of his convictions is for um, sex with a minor. So does that not make him a nonce? Well, yeah, it makes him a nonce without question. It, there you go. It makes him it makes him a right old wrongan. But unfortunately, he does. Unfortunately, that song was in my head as soon as I saw Corin Rind. My mind is telling me no, but my body is telling me yes. Well, and R. that's Kelly, part of the fucking problem. Your body should also have been telling you. you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. I have no shite. Although, um, once again, I think I now do have some shite stuck in my head thanks to you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what about your good stuff? What would you like to give a shout to and add to our playlists? So I'm going. So I've had some more recent stuff um, in our last few pods. I'm going uh, absolutely old school. I have no idea why it popped into my head the other day, but it's an absolute belter. It's a classic. It's Janis Joplin. It's me and Bobby McGee. Yeah, get in. It's a great sort. It starts off if you've never heard. I mean, how have you never heard it? But starts off as a great sort of country song, and then has an absolute rock freak out at the end. It's it's brilliant. And Janis Joplin is an amazing artist with such a unique and iconic voice. Uh, yes, yeah, that's what's been stuck in my head for about two weeks, and I've been having a lovely time when it hasn't been being pushed <laughs> out by. Uh, by nonce music. <laughs> oh, excellent. Yeah, I mean, what more can we say? Janis Joplin was an amazing artist. We we should probably think about doing some Janis Joplin at some point. Um, Definitely. On Album Clash. Uh, so the thing I want to give a shout to is new, brand new, in fact. It dropped uh, only on Friday of uh, last week, the day we were supposed to be recording, in fact. So it is the first new material in five years by LCD Sound System. Lovely stuff. Yeah, the track is called New Body Rumba, and if you like LCD Sound System, then you're going to like New Body Rumba because it has all the ingredients that you expect in a James Murphy joint. Amazing. We are big fans of James Murphy. Amazingly, we... I don't believe we've done LCD Sound System, have we? We have not yet done LCD Sound System, no. That will definitely be um, rectified at some point. Uh, yes, it will definitely be rectified at some point. Yeah, okay, so we will add Janis Joplin and LCD Sound System to our Can't Get You Out of My Head playlists. One of them is on YouTube Music, one of them is on Spotify. I mean, they're identical because they're the tracks we've picked out on Can't Get You Out of My Head, but uh, you can listen to them on either of those two platforms. And please, by all means, they're, they're, so they're public playlists, obviously, but if anyone uh, is on a different streaming platform, please feel free to create your own Can't Get You Out of My Head playlist so you can share our choices with more people. We want to be as diverse as possible on Album Clash. 
Indeed. And yeah, like the it it's a it's a wild old ride when because I do I do from time to time listen to the uh to the playlist and there's there's a hell of a hell of a selection on there. Like it goes it goes it lots is. of different ways, but yeah, it's a good listen. It is a good listen. We've got so we've got folk, we've got country, we've got rock, we've got electro, we've got classic tracks, we've got brand new tracks. Yeah, it's awesome. We've and we've also got a rager. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. We have certified pop banger, uh, indeed. Right, okay, so uh, we're still not going to get to our albums because uh, if anyone who listened to the first part in our last clash will uh, recall the feature Keep or Throw, where I forced Kevin to part ways with his favourite Rolling Stones album <laughs> by tricking him. Uh, now it's your time, chance for revenge, Kev. So um, just to remind people, it's based on the scene in Shaun of the Dead where they're throwing records at zombies. Kev will read out three albums i have to decide after each one whether i will keep it or whether i will throw it i have to keep at least one i have to throw at least one over to you okay so your three albums are the stone roses keep definitely maybe (sighs) fuck keep the seahorses do it yourself i mean that's definitely a throw (laughs) anyway I thought you were going to do a mischief there and put something great. No, Seahorses is definitely a throw. There's only one good track on it. Yeah, I thought so. (laughs) (laughs) Good fun. Nice. (laughs) So you you were trying to rope-a-dope me again and get me to throw definitely. I I did try and rope-a-dope, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Excellent stuff. Good, good, good. Right. Shall we get on to our albums? Yes, let's, uh, let's get right into it. Do you have any top trumps? So there are a couple, but there's not a huge amount. But I mean, we can we can have a go if you want. So uh, yeah, because I have something for all but one category. So I've got nothing for sales. Okay, so live at the Apollo sold over one million copies. Yeah, there's there's no details um, available right, on Wikipedia <laughs> for sales of fine. live in Europe. Okay, fine. So well, I'm going to win that one by default then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about charts? Uh, so charts. So live in Europe uh, peaked in the UK um, at fourteen, mm-hmm. and peaked on the US Billboard top LPs at thirty-two. Ooh, okay. I win this one uh, because uh, live at the Apollo peaked on the US album chart at number two. It was oh, something wow. of a breakout album for Mr. Jables. So, yep, I win that one. Uh, as I said, certifications, I've got nothing, although I do have an interesting uh, story as to why. Because as I said, it sold over a million copies, so should have had a platinum in the US. But King Records basically uh, refused to pay the subscription fees or whatever it would be to the certifying body in the States. So it never got official certification. <laughs> Absolute wrongans. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, you got anything for awards? Uh, so no awards associated with this. The only thing I have is the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1998 uh, inducted live at the Apollo. Right, okay. Um, yeah, so it's, it, this album's never been inducted. Okay, right. So uh, I'm through in the lap, get in. What have you got on your lists? So the only list that I can find that it's um, it's on is uh, it was ranked 474 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums in 2003. Okay, so on that same list, Live at the Apollo was ranked number 25. So that's better. 
yes, it is. <laughs> uh, and and then uh, in 2020, that was uh, downgraded to 65, but still very much better than 474. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, which which was not repeated. <laughs> oh, okay, right there you go. So fine, right. So uh, I'm four nil up. There's one category to go, and you ain't going to win this one. You might get a draw, but you ain't winning it. <laughs> go on. What have you got in terms of critic scores? So there are three professional ratings. Three stars from all music, which I think is f- fucking mad. It is mad. Be- uh, so I have five stars from all music. Uh, Rolling Stone, it's just described as favourable. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> favourable. Uh, so Rolling Stone gave a at the Apollo, five out of five. And the Encyclopedia of Popular Music hmm, um, <laughs> gave it four stars. Okay, I don't have that score. But, uh, so but basically... Everyone has given Levy the Apollo top marks. Pitchport gave it ten out of ten. Yeah. NME gave it ten out of ten. So yeah, it's it's got top marks all across the board. I think you're the winner. <laughs> yeah, I am the winner. Get in. <laughs> uh but as we've said, will Live at the Apollo carry that good form through to win the only score that really matters? Who knows? Well, you're about to find out. In the next uh, two well, episodes. In, in, in a fortnight's time, you'll find out. <laughs> okay, shall I start taking us through live at the Apollo? Uh, yes, I think you should. Right, so it was recorded on the 24th of October 1962 at the Apollo Theatre in Harlem, New York. It was released in May of 1963 on, as I mentioned earlier, King Records. It was produced by James Brown himself. So the album is actually by James Brown and the Famous Flames his vocal ensemble, although the Flames were not credited on the album. And I'll come on to talk about that a little bit more when I go through the legacy. Right, so in 1962, James Brown's status, certainly as a singles artist, was certainly impressive. He released Please, Please, Please in 1956. That sold a million copies, and then he recorded a string of million sellers in the years thereafter. What I would say is that the sales figures for his albums were dramatically lower. So basically, most of his albums up until this point had only sold in the region of like 10,000 copies each, which is, considering his singles are selling a million, a bit mad, really. Yeah, it is. It is mad. But I mean, when you when you go through James Brown's back catalogue, there isn't there's no what's going on. There's no um, Mm. songs in the key of life. He. He has amazing songs across a load of albums, but he's not really an album artist, to be honest. No, that's a very fair point. Uh, and perhaps that's why his live albums always performed so well, because it was, uh, you know, a, a place where you could hear uh, collections of his most famous tunes in one place. Yeah. <laughs> Kev is nodding in agreement. Yeah, <laughs> right, which, is, anyway. which is great for an audio, um, an yeah. audio format. Indeed. Uh, right, okay, so one thing we can say about, about James Brown is he was quite prolific on the live scene. So he, at this time, was performing around about 300 gigs a year. That's quite a few. Uh, and he was basically anointed, as we hear uh, by, when the MC introduces him at the start of the show, he was anointed the hardest working man in show business. And with, with that sort of work rate, you can see why. Yeah, um, and we know the the stories about James Brown and and his band, or if you're not aware of it, that it's always interesting to watch footage of James Brown performing. So when he, the story is, when you see him click his fingers, 
that's him making a a note to his manager who's at the side of the stage saying that basically one of the band has missed a note and he's getting fined. Yeah, indeed. So basically, James Brown wanted to do a live album to capitalise on that moniker of being the hardest working man in show business. So in, in a 2012 Guardian article reviewing the album, he was quoted as saying, the songs were a lot different live. Any artist, if he's really got his act together, his live show will be twice as good as the record. And I tried to convince King Records... But the boss of King Records, Sid Nathan, vetoed that. Uh, didn't think a live album would be profitable. The way James Brown and his manager managed to convince Sid Nathan to support the project was basically by saying, fine, we'll fund it ourselves. So James Brown stumped up the cash for recording for the recording equipment and for renting the Apollo Theatre, which cost $5,700 at the time, which is in the region of... 70,000 in today's currency, so not an insubstantial amount of money, it must be said. So Bobby Bird, of the Famous Flames, he uh, recalled that James was very intense because he was booking the Apollo himself. He had everyone in tuxedos. So the Famous Flames residence at the Apollo began on the 19th of October 1962, and the night of the 24th was chosen to do the recording for the album. The recording wasn't without obstacles though so apparently one of the early performances an elderly woman repeatedly screamed sing it motherfucker (laughs) within clear earshot of a microphone and apparently whilst their initial thought was well we can't have that on the album the band realized that she'd actually was quite an asset encouraging the rest of the audience to shriek louder and and just build up that that Mm -hmm. atmosphere so uh, they basically bribed her with popcorn to come back to the later shows moving the microphone out of range of her filthy mouth, but basically saying, yeah, just carry on. Just act as basically as a, a, a hype man, I suppose you'd call, or hype woman, <laughs> I should say. So Bobby Bird again said she brought the house down. She was a big part of the album. So James Brown, he, he was always something of a shrewd businessman, it must be said. And so having funded the recording of the album and therefore being the owner of the recordings, James Brown then forced Sid Nathan to buy the tapes from him uh, in order to get the album put out. Fair play. Yeah. um, (laughs) He knew how to turn a coin. (laughs) He did indeed. Uh, But Nathan still wasn't impressed, apparently. So again, James Brown in that Guardian article said he didn't like the way we went from one tune to another without stopping. I guess he was expecting exact copies of our earlier records, but with people politely applauding in between which is not what you get from any live show, really, and certainly not a James Brown live show. But once Sid Nathan had agreed to press 5,000 copies, they then went on to argue about whether they they should release a promotional single. Um, again, James Brown said, Mr. Nathan was waiting to see which tune the radio stations were going to play from the album. And then he would shoot it out as a single. I said, we're not going to take any singles off it. Sell it the way it is. And so they did. Which, yeah, it, you know, was a really good idea because in order to hear James Brown live, you have to buy the album. Exactly. Uh, and as we've already seen with the Top Trumps, that proved to be quite a clever marketing strategy. Very much so. But that's all I've got on background, unless there's anything more you want to bring to the table? No, no, I've got I've got nothing, nothing else. Okay, so Kevin, how did you first discover James Brown live at the Apollo? So... As as we've established over a period of time, very much a, a blue-eyed soul boy. Love me a bit of bit of soul, and 
particularly when Spotify first came out and you could have access to everything. Mm. Yes, Spotify. No, no, no. This is this was actually um, a Spotify thing, <laughs> as opposed to um, what we've referred to before as our ways of procuring music in the early two thousands. Yeah, the like you had access to everything and everything catalogued under an artist. And I went through a big James Brown revival and listened to loads of stuff. And this was one of the first things that I came across because it's like, ooh. James Brown Live, I'm on to all of that. Thank you very much. Yeah, so I've, I've known it for a, a good sort of 10-odd years. Very good. So it's a first listen for me, uh, which I, I think I said last week, and, and it'll be the same with the with the Otis Redding album, first listen. So, yeah, uh, I did have the uh, privilege of seeing James Brown live, however. He supported the Red Hot Chili Peppers in Manchester and was by far the most enjoyable part of that concert. (laughs) (laughs) I have also seen James Brown live. I saw him at, uh, he played V98 and played in a tent. Wow. Like, it was honestly, it was one of the, like, whoever was booking that was absolutely on something. Because, so, you had All Saints played. (laughs) You had the Verve who were just about to break up and had that fella on the slide guitar, DJ Spuddles. <laughs> you had, I think Robbie Williams played Stereophonics were really high. The, but, the, but you had, you also had Fat of the Land Prodigy playing. So it was... <laughs> what a fucking acid trip of a lineup. Yeah, it, like a proper mad lineup. But So yes, I did see James Brown uh, there, which, yeah, there you go. And he was good, I assume. He was James Brown, so yeah. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Good guy. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to do any James Brown impressions. No, that's that's all I'm going to do. For... <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, okay. Shall we have a little chat about the artwork then? Yeah, um, I really like the artwork. I really like the artwork. So it's credited to Dan Quest, which uh, is a great name. Um, he needs to go on some sort of magical adventure, surely, <laughs> with a name like that. Son is Tribe Called. Hey! <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, so it it's a painting of the billboard outside the Apollo Theater with people queuing to see the show. I've said it. It looks like a Lowry painting, almost. Yeah, it's it does have that that real sort of I, I don't know, kind of gritty gritty urban realism, the like Lowry sort. Mm. Of, so I, I definitely see what you mean. That yeah, it's it's a cracking cover. It's it's really good. It is a great cover, and actually, I've just thought I would now really like to see an exhibition of album covers reimagined as Lowry paintings. Oh, oh, I like the sound of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the only thing I'd say uh, that the album cover is lacking is uh, the fact that the famous flames aren't credited, and it would be nice if they were. Yeah, that's a bit snide, but it's James Brown. <laughs> so. Yeah, indeed. All right, shall we start going through the tracks? Yes, let's do it. So it's another relatively short album. Well, in fact, I think the whole thing is less than 30 minutes in length, and we have only eight tracks to go through. And it absolutely wallops through. They do, indeed. Uh, So we start with Introduction by the MC and the organ player for the gig, uh, Lucas Fats Gonder. Great name. (laughs) It is a great name. So what I've said here um, is, so just like that scene in the pub at the beginning of Shaun of the Dead, where Nick Frost's character basically gives away the entire plot, Fats Gonder here basically tells us the entire set list before the show's even begun. (laughs) But 
listening to a James Brown live album, I want that intro. I want Oh yeah. Welcome the hardest working man in showbiz. I want all that. And as soon as that happens, I am buzzing. Yeah, I agree. It's great. Well, and then they then they start they they absolutely bounce into a into a massive sort of jazz blues jam which sounds like the theme from Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Or perhaps it's a theme from Peter Gunn. I don't know. Funk man. <laughs> and it's really good. It's a lot of fun. I'd like to, I'd like a bit more of this, to be honest with you. But yeah. you get, what, a minute and a half, and then it's like, bam, crack into the next track. Yeah, it's great. Like, just flat, like we're going straight in at 100 miles an hour. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, 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 with that, I'll move on to I'll Go Crazy, if that's okay. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so yeah, the, the first song proper is I'll Go Crazy. This was originally released in 1960. It was his fourth hit, charting at number 14 on the Billboard R&B chart. So yeah, here we have Soul Brother number one singing, and as soon as he does start singing, the crowd absolutely explodes. Yeah, and with very good reason. He sounds amazing. He does sound really good. I would also say I think the famous flames sound really good backing him. Oh, they're so tight. Yeah, they are tight and some lovely, lovely harmonies. I mean, as for the song itself, it's a, I've said it's a fairly simple R&B number. You know, it bounces along at a, 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 a fair old pace and there's some lovely brass emphasis at sort of the end of each line, which is, which is nice. I suppose when I say fairly simple R&B number, that is indicative of James Brown's output up until this point. And the fact that this is what well, this is only sixty two, so he there was a lot more to come from him. Let's say, yeah, definitely. It's it's one of the funny things about that is that it's a re- like a lot of the set list are relatively simple and not his best known stuff. Mm-hmm. But just because of how great he is and how the band is, like it doesn't matter if it's an old school crooner, which is obviously what we'll get onto on the next one, or like a really simple basic R&B thing like him and the band make it into something really spectacular yeah agreed um but it's it's only a short one we've probably been talking about it for longer than the actual track is <laughs> it's gonna happen a lot so shall I move on uh try me is the next track this was originally released in October of 1958 it was uh, got to number one on the R&B chart. It got to number 48 on the pop chart in the States. It was their second charting single after Please, 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 which came out in 1956. And again, you can hear just how much the crowd is absolutely eating out of the palm of his hand and hanging off James Brown's every word. Do you know what I mean? Oh, they, they don't mind this one. They don't. But what do you think of it? I really like it. It's an old school ballad, but it's got a really great brass section. Um, the back and vocals are really good. It's not the kind of thing I would normally go for, but I think the package with the crowd absolutely buzzing off it and everything being so well done. Yeah, I, I had I had a lovely time listening to this. Hmm. So I have to say this doesn't especially resonate me with this with me this mm-hmm. one. So it, it, it is, again, it, it was recorded in 1958, and it is much more of a sort of doo-wop style crooner number, which is something I've never been especially keen on, I have to say, because it's just like a million other pop standards from the 50s. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I can get that. It doesn't hang around. 
I don't dislike it, to be clear. I don't dislike it. It just doesn't do much for me. Uh, with the exception of that jazz freakout at the end, which is absolutely mega. Yeah, which is what you want more of, really. It is indeed. Um, but we don't get more of it because we go straight from that into Fink. Uh, so this was originally recorded by the Five Inch Royales in 1957. James Brown and the Flames version came out in 1960. That got to number seven on the R&B chart, number 33 on the pop chart. So it became their first single to enter the top 40 on the Billboard, what became the Billboard Hot 100. And what I've said here is now this is more like it. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, my first note is you can hear in this where he's going. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's got a bit more funk to it. it. It's that high tempo, high energy James Brown that you kind of instantly comes to mind. And listening to this, I want to be in the Apollo. I want to be right bang yes. in the middle of this, watching him absolutely give it some because you can almost hit, like, hear him working so hard through the song it's it's mm-hmm. amazing like i yeah big fan yeah I, I had a lot of fun listening to this and i've said very similar to you i said you can start to hear the seeds being sown of what james brown and the jb's his backing band would become over the next decade really uh it's a really great up-tempo jazz tune uh the band is tight as anything perhaps because they knew they had to be otherwise they wouldn't get paid <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there's a lovely sax solo after the first chorus as well yeah it, it's all like just good stuff indeed lovely stuff great stuff but it's another short one I'd, li- I'd, I'd like more I'd like them to carry on but they don't yeah I want more I want longer yeah um, but they don't they just go straight into I don't mind and I do mind <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so this was released May of 61. It reached number four on the R&B chart, number 47 on the pop chart. Uh, apparently the Who covered this on My Generation. Oh, well, do you know what? Never picked up on that, but nope. there you go. Mm. So it, it start contrast to think a real slow down, dirty blues number, this one. Yeah, um, so I, I think I've already uh, laid, laid my cards out fairly, fairly early. Not, I'm not so keen on this one. I think that it still performed really well, as as you would expect. I'm just I'm a bit less into the kind of staccato performance, and yeah, it just never much like Try Me really didn't didn't grab you. This really didn't grab me. Oh, okay. So I like this. I like there's a there's, there's, so it's, it's a real bluesy lament, as I said. There's that subtle organ part underneath everything just highlights that. I, I like it. The, you get the jazz freak out back at the end, which is all kinds of good. Well, yeah, like, you know, he's still like, that's the thing is that whilst I don't necessarily love the song, there's always bits in it that there's something to enjoy. So whether it's just marveling at the at how great the band are and the freak out at the end or just being captivated by his vocal skill and ability to, to just have that crowd in the palm of his hands, mm. like there's... So even if you're not enjoying it, you're still enjoying it. It's a it's a weird thing. I know what you mean. So I'm 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 really interested that you talked about being captivated by his vocal performance because the one thing I've said is in the middle of this when the band sort of takes it right down, you can practically hear a pin drop. Yeah, and and I don't think it's because the crowd isn't into it. I think it's they are transfixed by the performance. 
Um, that and and so no, yeah, the, without without question, and uh, I think that throughout this album is the this is this is a home crowd. We'll put we'll put it that way. <laughs> yes, um, and I mean obviously not where he's from, but you know what I mean. But like he he has them he has them from from the moment he walks out and. Mm. Yeah, it isn't boredom. It isn't the oh, like this is a nip out to the bar song or anything like that. It's that they are they are there and just transfixed by him. Yeah. So we are about what ten minutes into the album, and there's only three tracks left. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, my albums do not mess around. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, shall we go on to Lost Someone? Yeah, let's do it. So the first thing I'm going to say, before we even start talking about the track, is it, it, it is a bold choice to have an eight-track album of 30 minutes length and have one of those tracks take up over 10 minutes. It is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Lost Someone was originally released in November of 61. It got to number two on the R&B chart, number 48 on the pop chart. Uh, on the original vinyl release, this 11-minute long version, sorry, by which I mean the original vinyl release of Live at the Apollo, this 11-minute long rendition is actually split across the end of side one and the start of side two, which is very unconventional. It is. It is, a, it is an odd old choice, but, do you know, well, I'll let you, I'll let you go into it first. Well, I, I would like to, somewhat unconventionally for Album Clash, at this point I'd like to actually quote a critic Oh. Uh, so crit- critic Peter Guralnik wrote of this particular track. Um, Here, in a single multi-layered track, you've embodied the whole history of soul music. The teaching, the preaching, the endless assortment of gospel effects, above all the groove that was at the music's core. Don't go to strangers, James pleads in his abrasively vulnerable fashion. Come on home to me. Gee whiz, I love you. I'm so weak. Over and over, he repeats the simple phrases. Insists, I'll love you tomorrow until the music is rocking with a steady pulse. Until the music grabs you in the pit of the stomach and James knows he's got you. Then he works the audience as he works the song. Teasing, tantalising, drawing closer, dancing away, until finally at the end of side one, that voice breaks through the crowd noise and dissipates the tension as it calls out, James, you're an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) I believe someone out there loves someone, declares James with cruel disingenuousness. Yeah, you, replies a girl's voice with an unabashed fervour. I feel so good I want to scream, said James, testing the limits yet again. Scream, cries a voice, and the record listener responds too. We are drawn in by the same tricks, so transparent in the daylight, but put across with the same unabashed fervour with which the girl in the audience offers up her love. I mean, that was a very long passage, but I have very little else to say because I think that perfectly sums it up. Yeah, it like it encapsulates it perfectly. The only thing I want to add, uh, because I have to undercut such a beautiful piece of prose with me being uh, a knobhead. Well, not really a knobhead, but no one can say "ow" like James Brown. <laughs> no one can do can do it like him. No, you're absolutely right. No one can. And I think I think the only other thing to add is that again, I really wish I was in the Apollo like during this it just sounds like just an, an amazing place to be yeah i agree so 10 minutes 11 minutes you could say that this is repetitive because it is literally just the, the same 
blue structure with little brass licks all the way through. Uh, and we've spoken before, both of us, about when you've got a track of that length, you need variation. But I don't think this needs variation. I really like the repetitiveness of it. I like the fact that it is just the band taking things down, bringing things up. And exactly as that passage said, just allows James Brown to shine and to captivate the audience. And wow. Well, when you've got, you know, I mean, I am usually the one to pull rank on uh, song length and stuff like that. But when you've got someone who is as charismatic and as such an ebullient mm. performer as James nice. James Brown, you've you've got to give him the space to do his do his thing, and he does, and he like yeah, he does. He, so yeah, he does. He knows he knows when to bring it down low. He knows when to take it up a notch. And he knows when to belt something out at the top of his lungs. Yeah, so it's it, it's a really great R and B song. This isn't it? Mournful, sultry. The sort of the cool muffle things on the trumpets give it the feel of a thirties speakeasy at times. Yeah, it's just the whole thing is dripping with soul and pathos and oh yeah, it's great. It is great. <laughs> Last thing I want to say. So six minutes in, like you hear a massive scream. Um, and I've said it's either someone's been spooked by a ma- giant spider or they're actually on a fairground ghost train and the skeleton has jumped, just jumped out at them. Well, I mean, it can't be a giant spider because this is not being performed in the Estadio Azteca. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Go and have a look at some of the highlights of the 1986 World Cup to understand what we're talking about there. <laughs> although, no, I really want to... Uh, I really would like to have seen James Brown play at the Azteca. Oh, God. that um, Wow. Yeah, exactly. That, that would be a thing. It would be a thing, indeed. Yeah, it's great, this. 11 minutes. Don't care. It's really good. Yeah. And then, like, it, like the next song is... Well, the next track is wild when you think about it. What's come before... Yep, so we've had six tracks now, and you said right at the start that most of this album is not his most well-known tunes to that time. Well, he just crams them all into into one six-minute medley here. So, yeah, in terms of, like, it's such a mad decision that, like, this is his most popular stuff to this point. And you, cr- like, you cram it all into a six a six-minute segment. <laughs> And that's it. Like, because you think if if you're going to... Because, like, the Otis Redding album, like, you're getting his top hits and some covers. Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. absolutely thrown yeah. in. So you're getting everything you want from Otis Redding. James Brown's gone, yeah, yeah, okay. But I'm just going to cram it into a very small time space and do it a million miles an hour. And there you go. <laughs> exactly. So within this medley, you've got... Please, please, please. You've got the power. I found someone. Why do you do me? I want you so bad. I love you. Yes, I do. Strange things happen. Are you going around the twist? <laughs> Bewildered. And again, we finish with please, please, please. <laughs> what I would say as well, how can a medley of eight different songs take four minutes less to get through than the previous singles? I know. <laughs> uh, and I would like to hear a lot more of Pretty much every one of those eight individual yeah. songs. Sometimes you get eight bars and that's it. It's straight yeah, on to the next one. I want loads more of what's what's in the medley, but I'm not complaining because yep. I've really enjoyed what's gone before. But like, just give me more, James. 
Abs- just give me more. I mean, the, what, like the crowd absolutely loses their shit when he kicks into please, please, please at the start. Oh, yeah. What I would say, I think for the most part, every movement and every, sorry, every individual snippet of each song flows really well into the next. What I have to say is that around halfway in, things to me at least start to lose some of the luster. Uh, I'm not keen on I love you. Yes, I do. I think it, when you think of how high the medley starts mm-hmm. with please, please, please into you got the power. I think I love you. Yes, I do jazz a bit, you know, cause it's a really slowed down song number. Um, but then when he comes, strange things happen. And by the time you, well, you've got a lovely bluesy guitar part in strange things happen. Uh, and then the, the return to please, please, please at the end, it's picked back up again. So yeah, for me, there was a lull in the middle, which took me out of things a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can see where you I can see where you're coming from. That there is a slight jarring in the in the middle section, but I'm I'm willing to forget because it's just like how brilliantly did they manage to? Because not because they're not like you know like when you just thinking back to the medley that's on the uh, live at Leeds, mm-hmm. that they're all very similar tempoed songs so doing a medley makes perfect sense yes these are all like different tempos and like different styles that he's that they've crammed into six like just the sheer technical ability to do that obviously the band knew that they had to do it right because they're not getting (laughs) not getting fed or like a bloody hotel room if they don't um they have to pull the tour bus along behind them if they (laughs) well yeah the bands are like amazing to do that and James Brown sounds like sounds like James Brown. So whilst yeah. there are moments where you go, that's not necessarily the decision I would make. It still works really well. Yeah, agreed, agreed. All right, so uh, we on to the last track, Kiff Night Train. Uh, well, yeah, again, flown through. Yep, we have flown through it. Um, so Night Train uh, was originally an instrumental twelve-bar blues recorded by Jimmy Forrest originally in nineteen fifty-one. Not lads. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, you could have said Craig's lad. No, I would I, I, because I I also know that. So if you are a Nottingham Forest fan, like I know it really bugs some people referring to him as Knotts yeah, Forest. Yeah, called Knotts Forest. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so several versions of Night Train have been recorded, some with lyrics, some without. Um, the lyrics that James Brown sings in this, he basically improvised them on the recording. Um, well, it's basically just James Brown saying the name of several uh, American cities. Something which actually he came back to in the mid '80s when he did uh, Living in America. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as children of the '80s, um, we always love coming back to Living in America because it reminds us of uh, Rocky Four. Yeah, hundred percent. And in all seriousness, Rocky Four was probably my first exposure to James Brown. I would say yes, without question, it would be mine. Then followed by the bit in the commitments uh, where they're watching the... So the performance of Please, Please, which is the classic uh, James Brown being led off the stage. Yeah, and you hear the crowd going like... So I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll come back to the commitments when we go through the Otis album as well. Indeed. Um, 
Yeah, Night Train. Uh, if you haven't heard James Brown's version of Night Train, you may recognise the tune. Um, because, well, George McFly is about to go and rescue Lorraine Baines from Calvin Klein. But little <laughs> does he realise that it's actually Biff Tannen that awaits him in the car. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's played by the band in Back to the Future before they are joined on stage by uh, Marty McFly, um, uh, a white person taking credit for black music. I mean, that's never happened in the history of uh, modern music, has it? <laughs> no. I mean, so I'm going to just say Back to the Future is legitimately, legitimately my favourite film. It's fucking flawless. But there is an optic by which the whole... It was actually Marty McFly that came up with the inspiration for Chuck Berry. So basically Isn't invented great. rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, much like uh, Nicholas Lindhurst came up with most of the Beatles back catalogue in 1940. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, like no, no one makes no one makes out like he, okay, yes, he's time traveling, which is a thing, but he's still he's still having it away, like from his yes. from his wife, like, and then going back and everything's fine. Yeah. Time traveling bigamist Nicholas <laughs> Lindhurst. Like, who pitched Goodnight Sweetheart? What the fuck were they thinking? And how on earth was it so bloody successful? <laughs> yeah, like, it, the whole idea, the whole concept of that is absolutely mad. Yeah, it, it, it is mad. So if, if people have no idea what we're talking about, I mean, it's us talking about sitcoms from the 80s and 90s, so you're used to it by now. But yeah, this was a, a, a sitcom in which Nicholas Lindhurst, the main character who played Rodney in Only Fools and Horses, discovered a portal to travel back in time to wartime London. Uh, he, he was a married man in the, the present and then fell in love with uh, someone, uh, a girl that worked in a bar. Well, she owned the bar, I think, a pub in London in the 1940s. And yeah, like spent about eight series traveling back and forth between the 20th, between late 20th century and wartime London, uh, having it away with two sexy women. <laughs> and also, like, nobody else from the from the early 90s walks down that path and ends nope. up. So why, why Nicholas Lindhurst? Anyway, like... <laughs> We could pick the the holes into Goodnight Sweetheart for an entire pod, but I don't think that's what the listeners are here for. No. Uh, the only last thing I'll say is, is, is Bezzy Mate was uh, Billy from Bread. Indeed, yeah. Right, anyway, yeah. So, let, what do you think of Night Train, the song that started <laughs> us down this weird <laughs> tangent? So, I really, I really like it. Again, it's signposting where James Brown's going. Um, it's got that real funk yes. sound to it, and everyone, everyone's brilliant. Crowd having a lovely time. It's a great way to end the album and have that up tempo, up tempo end. I agree, but so I, I think it's a really good closer. I personally, I think they could easily have drawn it out into an extended jam, and it would have been phenomenal. The but is, it just sort of ends with a weird sort of this acceptance speech has gone on too long lounge organ addendum, which leaves me feeling, oh, is that it? It's finished. It's it's a really strange, like, literally the last 10 seconds are like, what? Oh, all right. Do you know what I mean? Hey, it's James Brown. He's all, he will always leave you wanting more. Well, that's true. That's true. But yeah, what? But, but, but why have it as a sort of end of the pair? Oh, I do like to be beside the seaside organ piece though. <laughs> it's the 60s. 
<laughs> okay, fine. But no, it's really good. I do like Night Train a lot, and I do think it's a good way to end. But as with most of the tracks on this album, I'm left wanting, literally wanting more. Just play another 30 seconds, please. Yes, yes, please. I'd. You could double the length of this album, and I'd still be absolutely fine. Quite so. Uh, but the length has not doubled, and we are done with Live at the Apollo. Indeed. Shall I do some reviews? Yes, uh, because I know one in particular. Is, he mm. is back. He is back. We've, we will get to Robert Criscow. Uh, we will get to Nobby. But before we do, so in a retrospective review for The Enemy in 1975, Cliff White, Cliffs of Dover's lad. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> in this one performance, Cliff said, are all the ingredients that Brown later refined into some of the most innovatory black records of the 60s. If you have any pretensions at all toward understanding the evolution of black music, Live at the Apollo is an essential part of your collection. Yeah, can't disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Rob Bowman, in his review for All Music, said an astonishing record of James and the Flames tearing the roof off the sucker at the mecca of R&B theatres, New York's Apollo. The affirmative screams and cries of the audience are something you'd never experienced unless you've seen the Brown review in a black theatre. If you have, I need not say more. If you haven't, suffice to say that this should be one of the very first records you ever own. Again, very it's the same sentiments there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, let's go to Nobby, shall we? So uh, he wrote his review retrospectively for the Rolling Stone, and the first thing I would say is he actually reviews the album. Here. Wow! Yeah. So uh, he said, recorded in 1962 and barely half an hour long, it lacks the heft we associate with live albums, relegating major songs to the same eight-title medley as forgettable ones. But not only did it establish Brown as an R&B superstar and a sales force to be reckoned with, it's a time capsule, living testament of a chitlin circuit now defunct. The band is as clean as a silk suit. How the women love this rough singer's tender lover-in-song act. There is no music anywhere quite like the perfectly timed and articulated female fan screeches that punctuate the 10-minute lost someone. Wow. What do we think of Nobby's review there? It's almost like a normal review. Yep. I'm a little bit sort of confused that it... Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit confused because it it makes sense. There are, sen- there are entire sentences. Yep. There are not meanderings about how he was involved in anything. I was going to say, it's not self-referential at all, that, which is a surprise for Nobby. Yeah. So, fair enough. Oh, okay. You have a uh, you have a rare pass this week, Nobby. I have no more reviews. Are there any more that you would like to quote? Uh, no, I have uh, none to uh, bring to the table. All right, okay. So, let's just go through the legacy. And I'm not going to go through the legacy, uh, entire legacy of James Brown's career, because we know what it was. As we said, it peaked with Rocky Four. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but there are a few things I do want to cover. So one of the things I want to cover is James Brown as a live artist and his importance, quite literally, in stopping a riot. So have you ever seen the documentary The uh, the Night James Brown Saves Boston? I have not. So it's a, it's great. Track, track it down if you, if you can. So the night after uh, Martin Luther King's assassination, James Brown is due to perform in Boston. And everyone's a bit kind of, do we go ahead with this? Could it be, you know, could it all kick off? 
what what are we gonna what are we gonna do? And you know, the city didn't really know what to do. But what what they decided to do is James Brown and the mayor of of Boston, uh, Kevin White, decided to go ahead with the show, and it's shown on uh, free public access TV. And James Brown puts on a Barnes a a James Brown performance that and talks to the pain that you know the black community were were feeling at the time, and they then subsequently decide to repeat uh, the concert two or three times, like immediately after and after, and people just watched it. And basically, because of James Brown performance, Boston didn't go up in flames as other cities had across oh. across the US. It's it's a brilliant it's a brilliant documentary. It's fascinating insight into America, American politics, and the importance of James Brown at that time. So that's what I wanted to point out in his legacy. Okay, I was not aware of any of that. That's very interesting. Thank you. And you sort of undercut everything that I was going to say because <laughs> there's nothing quite so um, culturally significant as that. So, uh, no, really good. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so there's a few things I want to go through. So, as, as we said, it was a mega success. It spent 66 weeks on the Billboard chart. As I've said, it was the first of James Brown's albums to chart. That's despite the lack of a promotional single. Uh, and part of part of that success is down to the fact that radio DJs started playing the whole of the album, uh, so they dropped commercials in on the ga- on the break between side one and side two, basically. So Bobby Bird again said people were calling in; they really wanted to hear the whole thing, the excitement and everything. And like, ha- have you ever heard that? That radio DJs go, just fucking play the whole album. There you yeah. go. Yeah, I mean, you know, you get you get sort of retrospective reviews of albums but that's that's mad yeah just like we're gonna play the whole thing and just yeah crack on with it yeah exactly so as we've said the the success of this album that's what propelled james brown to mega stardom but what i want to focus on is not james brown but i want to ask what of the famous flames so in 1964 the group including james brown recorded another successful live album pure dynamite live at the royal I haven't heard that one, have you? I don't believe I have. Um, I also don't believe the Royal, like it's uh, like one of those flat top pubs um, <laughs> in the middle of a house in the States. Pure dynamite live at Shameless. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, that also reached the top 10 of the Billboard chart. During that time, the King Records inconsistent billing on records and albums basically led fans to believe that the Famous Flames were actually James Brown's backing band instead of the vocal ensemble that they that they actually were. So in 1964, James Brown and Bobby Bird formed their own production company called Fair Deal in an attempt to promote their records to a crossover audience. Uh, and um, interesting name choice. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. That hadn't twigged with me yet. Fair Deal. Quite right. Uh, so... James Brown signed a contract with Smash Records to distribute the uh, records from from Fair Deal. Uh, He released eight albums on Smash Records. However, after he released uh, Out of Sight, King Records stopped him from releasing any more recordings with Smash since he had not obtained their consent. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Well, yes, but. So uh, after a year-long standoff between James Brown and King Records, basically King realised that he'd backed them into a corner because 
by this time, he was by far their biggest star. So they basically offered him a new contract to give him full creative control over his recordings. <laughs> and, and he used it. Yeah, absolutely. So upon returning to King, James Brown recorded by himself uh, without the Famous Flames backing, though they did continue to receive credit from the label and they continued performing with James Brown live um, through to 1968. The first number one of James Brown's career was Papa's Got a Brand New Bag in 65 uh, and his solo aspirations basically led to a lot of dissension within the group. I say particularly as we said that they were often not credited at all and were rarely billed uh, at this point of, of recordings being by James Brown and the Famous Flames. So Lloyd Stallworth left the Flames in 1966. Uh, that left James Brown, Bobby Bird, and, and uh, the other member, Bobby Bennett. That dissension continued to grow, and in 1968, Bobby Bird and Bobby Bennett decided to go on with their own separate careers, and the famous Flames were no more. They disappeared. In 1968, King released, uh, re-released Live at the Apollo, this time calling it Live at the Apollo Volume 2, they edited out the introduction of the famous flames since by that time. Nice. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and although Bobby Bird reunited with James Brown on several occasions in the years since, the famous flames themselves never performed with him as a group. Uh, in his 1986 autobiography, James Brown was quite dismissive of them, saying they were a good stage act, but they couldn't really sing all that good bollocks but elsewhere he was quoted as referring to them as a real fine bunch sorry a bunch of real fine quartet singers so i don't know um i ain't done yet <laughs> and in 2003 the famous flames well the, the three members of the famous flames who weren't james brown sued james brown and universal records who by that time owned the king records back catalog claiming that they were cheated out of royalties uh, despite rumours of bad blood, Bobby Bird con contested that he still loved James Brown uh, and it was more contractual issues with Universal and King Records than it was with Brown himself. Lloyd Stallworth died in 2001. Um, James Brown himself died on Christmas Day in 2006. Bobby Bird performed at his funeral in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, Bobby Bird himself then died in September 2007. And so Bobby Bennett, as the last surviving member of the Famous Flames, lived long enough to see the group inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012, uh, before himself dying in January 2013. And as the uh, final member of the Fighting Hellfish, he got to uh, get, get the uh, paintings <laughs> from the... Uh, after the end of the Tontine. <laughs> yeah, but, and then the German fella turned up and <laughs> took them all back to dance central in Stuttgart to see Kraftwerk. <laughs> I'm wearing a Kraftwerk t-shirt today, by the way. <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, customary Simpsons reference. Tick. Yep. Uh, okay, so so a couple of things to finish off. Famous Flames were posthumously inducted into the National Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame in two separate inductions, so James Brown in 2013 and the remaining Famous Flames in 2020. And the last thing I want to say in a callback to an album we have previously done on Album Clash, 
One of the people who cited Live at the Apollo as an inspiration was MC5 guitarist Wayne Kramer, Mm -hmm. who, uh, when referring to Kick Out the Jams, said, Our whole thing was based on James Brown. We listened to Live at the Apollo endlessly on acid. We would listen to that in the van in the early days of 8-tracks on the way to gigs to get us up for the gig. If you played in a band in Detroit in the days before the MC5, Everybody did please, 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 and I go crazy. These were standards. We modelled the MC5's performance on those records. Everything we did was on a gut level about sweat and energy. It was anti-refinement. That's what we were consciously going for. Yeah, um, I've seen I've seen that quote myself before, and yeah, you can you can clearly see that James Brown had a legacy far, and this album had a legacy far beyond um, what you would naturally assume it to be, to have. Yeah, very much so. Um, that's everything I have on Legacy. However, as I say, we know what happened to James Brown. Yeah, it, it, he's not unknown. No, indeed. Okay, should we do best song, worst song? Yes, I think we should. All right, over to you. Um, so, worst song for me was "I Don't Mind." As I said, uh, I don't. There's there's still really good bits in it. It's just the one that I didn't enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. I. It's a tricky one for best song. I could have gone with Lost Someone, but I'm actually going to go with Think because it's up-tempo, it's fa- it's funky, and it, show- it signposts where James Brown's going. Yeah, okay, so I'll do my best song first because it's the same, and I've said exactly the same as you pretty much. I-, I think Lost Someone would be the obvious choice and a very good choice for the best songs. It's really good, but I, I just had loads of fun listening to Think, so that is my best song Uh, and my worst for very similar reasons to you is try me as i said it just doesn't have any impact on me unfortunately so there you go okay so we're all done we are all done uh so kev there's not much been going on in twitter land over the past few weeks since we last recorded (laughs) absolutely not no um like the uk has not completely lost its mind over the course of the past past few weeks performative grieving uh, so i am going to speak to i'm going to speak to this a, a wee touch so me and him have been exchanging our favorite bits of uh companies expressing their condolences for on the death of the queen my personal favorite has to be the british kebab awards tweeting out there uh, as we know big lizzie massive massive fan of Adonna. <laughs> so my favourite was definitely Anne Summers, which had this sort of black <laughs> respectful condolences thing, and then like buy a massive pink dildo immediately below it, <laughs> and draw your own inferences from. from... <laughs> Touche. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can um, review the. Um, the history of a country gradually losing its mind on Twitter. Whilst on there, you can go to our page at Clash Album. If you like carefully curated quality content, uh, you can go to our Insta at Clash Album. Or if you're resolutely old school, you can send us um, whatever your thoughts are on the British Kebab Awards or Anne Summers um, to <laughs> albumclash at gmail.com. Excellent stuff. Well done. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, guys. Please do let us know your thoughts on the British Kebab Awards or any other companies uh, expressing their sympathies and condolences with the royal family. (laughs) Also, yeah, follow, like, subscribe, uh, share it with your mates, tell people, get in touch with us, 
what do you want us to cover? All that stuff. I say it every week. Um, well, every two weeks now. Kev, just remind people what you're going to be taking us through in our next pod. So in our next pod, we will be going through Live in Europe by Otis Redding. Boom. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, however, I have, as usual, been Tim. And I continue to be Kev. And we'll see you next time, guys. Take care. Ta-da. Ta-da. Bye.